Hello, welcome to episode seven of A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. My name is Jonathan Seyfried, and I am the self-proclaimed socialist doing a close reading of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. All right, in this episode, we are going to focus on the cynical indifference of Pop Harper, and also we're going to be able to get into some more historical context. But first, let's have our moment of non-contradiction. Today's moment of non-contradiction comes from Quora on January 10th of this year, 2022, a response to a question was posted on Quora. The question was, is the scenario of the strike depicted in Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand likely to happen in the real world? The strike that's being referred to here is not the strike of the workers, not what you would expect when you hear the word strike. What ends up happening in the book is that it's the innovators who go on strike. Well, here's a response from someone named Jacques-René Guiguerre. I'm probably pronouncing that totally wrong. All right, so Jacques-René Guiguerre starts out with criticizing Ayn Rand for taking Social Security, which I will talk about a little bit later in this episode with a little historical context. But then here's the part that I want to really highlight for today's moment of non-contradiction. Quote, There are two authors who have a profound influence on young minds. Tolkien and Rand. One describes an imaginary world where bizarre characters without sense or reason undertake uncomprehensible actions for no conceivable purposes in unbelievable circumstances. The other describes the war between the hobbits and the orcs. Unquote. So what this particular commenter is saying is that the characters and their motivations in Atlas Shrugged and other Ayn Rand books are completely unrealistic to the point that what you see in The Lord of the Rings bears more resemblance to our own world than what you see in Atlas Shrugged. And this is something that we're really going to dig into. We're going to look at the moments where the characters seem to behave in ways that violate how most people are motivated and the psychology of most people. But then we're also going to look at points in the book where people behave in ways that I think you have to admit, would be actually realistic. So I think there's there's a mix in Atlas Shrugged. But the overall, the overall plot of Atlas Shrugged is very much a fantasy book. And I really think that you've got to treat Atlas Shrugged as taking place in an imaginary world, not as a realist depiction of anything that happens in our world. And as we go through the close reading, I will be very specific about how you can identify 
that this is not going to work if you try to apply it to the world in which we live. This is something intentional by Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand never argued that the world that she created in Atlas Shrugged was realist. She instead created this scenario and these characters in order to depict something like an ideal form. And so, again, you know, we get into this topic of craft, which I I don't really want to spend much more time on for reasons that I discussed in an earlier episode. But it is important to know that this is an unrealistic scenario and that people who treat it as realism, they are going down a road that, in my opinion, Ayn Rand herself probably didn't want them to go down. And so we're going to need to talk about, well, why do people do that anyway? Why do people have such a strong desire to see what's depicted in Atlas Shrugged as a reality? But I think it's also really important to get at this issue from the other side, which is to say that there are some things depicted in Atlas Shrugged that do bear resemblance to what humans do. And we need to admit that and we need to confront it and not paint with a broad brushstroke against everything that happens in the novel. So going forward, the way I'm going to handle this is when someone does something unrealistic or when there's something that's just so blatantly unrealistic, I'm going to identify it and say, of course, this doesn't seem realistic at all. And then I'm going to talk about, well, why would someone want this to be realistic? What does it say that a particular reader would I would look at this particular episode, we're going to talk about one of these today, and say, oh, yes, that would definitely happen, and here's why I think it would happen, so on and so forth, and then how would you have a conversation with that person in which you draw out from them some of what is going on in their mind that is driving them to desire a realistic scenario here where it just seems completely unrealistic to most people. With that, let's open up the book. All right, so Eddie Willers leaves Jim Taggart's office, having failed to get Jim Taggart to take the threat from trans Taggart Transcontinental's rival Seriously, the Phoenix-Durango line is the competitor to Taggart Transcontinental. And Jim Taggart says, you know, don't bother me with this stuff. You know, just go to my sister. She's the one that takes care of problems in this enterprise. Uh, We're about to meet Dagny Taggart officially in our next podcast episode, by the way. So Eddie Willers has failed to somehow shake James Taggart out of his, uh, what do you even call it? Um, ah, I, I don't even know what to call it. What do you even say? You, he's, 
James Taggart shaken out of his malaise, his sort of self-imposed malaise, his resistance to change. I don't even know. We're, I'm going to have to think of a word for that. But uh, malaise is what we'll go with right now. So that's that's what Eddie Willers failed to convince, uh, failed to change in James Taggart. And so uh, basically their their last interaction is with Eddie Willers bowing and then leaving. And then in the anteroom, there's this character named Pop Harper. Pop Harper. Pop Harper is very old and basically is tinkering with a busted typewriter, but glances up at Eddie Willers and basically gives him this exhausted look. But here's a sentence that I want to read out for you from the page itself. Quote, It was the cynical indifference which Eddie Willers had seen in the eyes of the bum on the street corner, unquote. So here we go. We've got the bum coming back. Somehow society is failing. The individual is failing. And here we see it again with Pop Harper, someone else who would be this longtime employee, the same as Eddie Willers. So in this little scene, Eddie Willers gets a glimpse of his own future. He sees someone much older than him and gets an idea of what he himself could be in store for if he just hangs around working at this company as a lifelong career like Pop Harper did. And what Pop Harper starts to talk about is how he can't find anything. He really wants some woolen undershirts, and they're just not in the store. There's a supply shortage of pretty much everything. And then they start talking about the typewriter, And as they're having this conversation about the typewriter, that's when Eddie Willers comes back to the calendar from a few pages before, page 12 in my edition. So here's the paragraph. Eddie started. That was the sentence he had tried to remember. Your days are numbered. But he had forgotten in what connection he had tried to remember it. So in the earlier part, he sees the calendar and he can't remember the phrase, your days are numbered. And then here on the other side of this scene with James Taggart, he hears the phrase, your days are numbered, but he can't remember the calendar. So what's being communicated here is that you're living your life and there's only so much time you got carpe diem, and yet so many people just go through without any carpe diem. And Eddie Willers can't even, he's so worn down by all this that he can't even make that connection to how the outside environment of the economy and the outside environment of his work is 
all kind of leading him to this questioning of what is the value of what I am doing with my days. I think this is something pretty realistic. You know, we were talking a moment ago about what's realistic in the human motivations in this book, what's not. I think a lot of people have jobs that they go to just to kind of pay the bills. They're just you know, showing up to work, they're trying to do good, put bread on the table, and they're doing the right thing. But the days go by, and they start to have the existential crisis of what does this all add up to? I'm just not sure. And then the conversation continues with Pop Harper. And what is revealed is that, well, they're they're not making the good typewriters anymore. And so what we have here is uh, Pop Harper saying, quote, I'm not going to requisition a new typewriter. The new ones are made out of tin. When the old ones go, that will be the end of typewriting. Unquote. The end of typewriting. There's going to be no more typewriting. This my friends, is definitely not realistic. I just cannot. It's just, it seems so far out to me that there would ever be a scenario in which it's like, oh, well, no more typewriting anymore. That that was a thing in the past. I mean, in terms of like a decay scenario, I mean, definitely if there was like a nuclear apocalypse or something, then I could see the end of typewriting. But in this particular scenario, it's just typewriters are the kind of product that, you know, you're not going to have an end to. I mean, it just seems really overly dramatic as an example. I can definitely see how there'd be a lot of train accidents as things decay, but just the end of typewriting as we know it, it just seems overwrought to me. But hey, this is the fantasy world that Ayn Rand creates in which supply shortages maybe just cascade on one another. So in a good faith effort, I'll just say, well, maybe maybe you could get to the point where it's the end of typewriting. And that brings me to an opportunity to discuss the context a little bit more here. So the last time I did some historical context, I talked about the 1950s and how really it's just not a time of decay. There's bumps in the road, recessions, but it's it's just not like what you see in the 1970s. So I mentioned last, last episode that I'm reading the big book, of Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter, about uh, capitalism, socialism, and democracy. And what's really being discussed in the 1950s is what seems to be the miracle economy of the Soviet Union. A lot of the information that's coming out about this is distorted by censorship. You cannot, as a foreign journalist, just really wander around the Soviet Union and report back about how its economy is going. Stalin has cracked down on all kinds of dissent and the kind of journalism that would expose inefficiencies in the Soviet economy. And there's a debate about how much 
we should criticize the communists and the socialists in the West, uh, places like uh, Britain and the United States for being apologists for Stalinist Russia. But And I think, honestly, that we should criticize them quite a lot, that you have a responsibility if you're going to be advocating for a particular country doing great things, like you really need to have some evidence. You can't just kind of take their word for it and say, oh, this is the way of the future. But in the 1950s, there was a widespread belief in the overall line, the deception coming out of the Soviet Union, which is that you could with a totalitarian style of government, rally the people to new economic heights. And Stalin argued that because of the success of communist economics, which I think would more accurately be termed as heavy socialism and totalitarian economics, the country was able to go from being a largely agrarian economy in 1917 to a highly industrialized economy in certain places by the end of the 1950s. So there's a great deal of fear in the United States that the Soviet Union is going to be able to innovate at a faster pace than the United States. And then later on, we see the Sputnik moment, where the Soviets are the first to be able to launch a satellite into space. And it gets a huge amount of media attention. But here's the thing, is that even before Sputnik, you have a sense that the Western capitalist democratic way of organizing the economy is not going to be the winner. It's something up for debate. It's a very, very different kind of historical context than what we have in our current day. Maybe you could look to China and and make some speculations about how China seems to have unlocked some economic growth potential that's beyond the capacity of the United States. It kind of gets you there, but it's still, it's not really the level of threat and competition and indeterminacy that existed in the 1950s. So Ayn Rand is very, very concerned with exposing the potential problems that would come from such a system that comes from the heavy hand of government. And so the kind of supply shortages like what's being brought up here is something that Ayn Rand is trying to show will come from a decay not necessarily the kind of socialist revolution that she herself lived through as a child. So it's an interesting tactic, but it's one that is made because the information about the inefficiencies of the Soviet system was just not available outside of Soviet Russia. Although 
Ayn Rand could certainly see for herself how having your family business taken over by the Bolsheviks and having to share your living quarters with other people that you didn't know would definitely put a drain on your motivation for being a productive member of the system, the new system. So Ayn Rand has some personal experience with this and also is bringing into it some of the larger contextual concerns that would have been appearing in the newspapers and in intellectual discussions in the 1950s. But one other thing that I want to address, which had come up during the moment of non-contradiction, is that Ayn Rand, for all of her criticism of government programs, did collect Social Security in old age. There's a lot of debate about this, and a lot of people like to go a little bit simplistic on it and say, ah, she's a hypocrite, obviously. It's it's more complicated than that because Social Security is a government program that does take your earnings and then pays it back to you later. So in a sense, it it was if you it was her own money coming back to her in a way. Now I don't know enough about this to get into the weeds on it and to know exactly how much Ayn Rand took and whether it was really she kept track of how much she'd given to the government and then how much she gets back and then you got to work in inflation and so on. I'm not sure it's it's quite fair to call her hypocritical on this account because once again, this is a work of fiction. This is a fantasy world and you can't expect... Ayn Rand to live according to this world because she did not expect that this would be a realistic novel that people should create. It was held up as her ideal, her ideal, kind of like what you would expect from heroes of Greek mythology, where they're representing certain human conditions in an exaggerated form. All right. I want to end today's episode by giving you just a little bit more information about myself. And it's never really been easy to kind of squeeze this in anywhere. It doesn't doesn't really segue into it all that much, but I feel like you should know a little bit more about me so that you can contextualize my comments on Atlas Shrugged and the ideas that I share with you. I check a lot of boxes when it comes to being a leftist. So I already mentioned to you that I got my master's degree at Stanford, got my bachelor's from the University of Michigan. I'm queer. I'm culturally Jewish. I volunteered for the teachers union when I was employed as a teacher. Also did some work for them. I've always been a city dweller. For the most part, I even drive an old Prius. So basically, I'm I'm like a liberal stereotype. So just keep that in mind when you're listening to me, that I come from a very, very strong liberal background. But one of my missions in life, in addition to this podcast, is to always work my darndest to be able to understand those 
with whom I disagree, and to resist the urge to put them into caricature. And that's something I took away from Atlas Shrugged, actually, which is that Ayn Rand caricatures those that she disagrees with, and in doing so, kind of holds up an example of what we should not do. So all of the objections to Ayn Rand when it comes to the unrealistic motivations and psychology of the characters, well, I think we need to take that to heart when we imagine the people that we disagree with and the people whose opinions frustrate us the most. And if we do that, then we become part of the solution as opposed to continuing to be part of the problem and driving us just deeper and deeper into polarization. So while I check a lot of lefty boxes, I hope that over the course of this podcast, you'll come to understand me as beyond just saying, I'm a socialist, I'm a lefty, and instead open up your mind to seeing each individual as a complex creation, one that can't be just put into a box of I side with them, I side against them. And maybe we can practice a way together to talk about politics and political affiliation in a way that uplifts the complicated nature of human personality and celebrates human dignity. And somehow doing that in the context of deep disagreement with those on what we see as the other side, we can start to be able to model conversations that heal as opposed to conversations that drive us further apart. That's what this podcast is all about. As a, in addition, in addition to being just a joyful romp through the world of ideas, which is something that I'm just kind of addicted to as a person, talking about ideas and their implications. I just think it's good fun. All right, I think that's a good note to end on. I will see you again in episode eight. My name is Jonathan Seifried. This has been another episode of A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. If you're interested in supporting my work, there is a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Take care.